I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello. And welcome to Israel War Briefing, a new weekly podcast from the Jewish Chronicle, offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. Each week, I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. This week, I'm joined by Mark Regev, senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister and Israel's former ambassador to the UK. We're speaking on Friday the 27th of October, 20 days since the war started. Mark, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, first of all, what have you made of the debate surrounding the media coverage of this war so far? So, with your permission, I'll raise a few issues. First of all, I think the use of the word militant has uh, uh, receded and people are using the correct word terrorist more and more. And maybe that's because of the atrocious violence we saw on October 7th. Yes, you can't say that militants burned people alive. You can't say militants uh, uh, cut people's heads off. You can't say militants shot people in a ravine, yes? Uh, and so I think that's something that I've noticed that even some media outlets that traditionally always just said militants, militants are now using the correct word, sometimes with a, a qualification. But I think that's something I've noticed in this conflict that wasn't there in the past, maybe precisely because, as I said, the atrocious nature of Hamas's behavior at the beginning of the conflict. One thing, though, hasn't changed. And since this conflict started, I've been hearing numerous reports from people inside Gaza. And I don't think on a single one of them I've heard even a hint of criticism of Hamas. And I think this is one of the structural problems that I don't have a solution to, but I think it needs to be talked about more and more. That Hamas runs Gaza in a very authoritarian way. It's capable of violence, not just against Israelis, but against its own people. And you get all these interviews of people from Gaza 
And if no one ever criticizes Hamas, you can presume, oh, one, everyone just loves Hamas, which is obviously an irrational presumption, or that people are very, very careful in what they say to foreign media. And they have the ability, through the authoritarian nature of their rule in Gaza, to uh, uh, enforce a sort of message, the party message. So I must have seen, since this conflict started, you know, hundreds of people, a doctor, a, a civilian, someone else being interviewed from Gaza, and yet you never hear a word of criticism of Hamas. Why is that? And I think the media needs to think about that. Uh, you know, they do the live interviews with someone who's just seen something or, uh, you know, giving a report on a hospital or a school. Yeah, Why is it you, you never hear that? I've got a, a former colleague in Gaza, and I asked him to interview some people about their true feelings about Hamas, even off the record. And he said it was more than their life was worth. He said even one brother won't confide his real feelings to another brother for fear of reprisals from Hamas. And so I think the media, I mean, they interview people in Gaza and they they present them as telling, you know, this is we're getting a genuine feeling of what people are saying. But there is, a, a, a I think, a structural problem, a methodological problem. People are, are fearful of, of speaking out of turn. So either they won't speak to a foreign journalist or they parrot the party line, what they think they're expected to give. So it's always an Israeli airstrike. There was never a legitimate military target in the area. They just blew up a home for no reason. Never a criticism of Hamas for starting this round of violence or of the terrible, uh, uh, atrocious atrocities that they committed against the Israeli public. That's never said by anyone in Gaza. So once again, one can presume that Everyone in Gaza believes in Hamas 100%. Uh, but the international community is always telling us, no, we have to uh, uh, differentiate between Palestinians and Hamas. Uh, and one one, one but, of the things that, that I've noticed is that, uh, as you're pointing out, that the uh, Western media seem to believe Hamas in a way that they would never believe Islamic State officials. And the prime minister and other people have been very uh, keen to identify the similarities between Hamas and Islamic State, both in terms of their ideological origins, but also in their brutal methods. Do you feel that that message is beginning to make any impact at all? I believe so, but there are still problems. Like all the statistics that come out of Gaza uh, on casualties are all uh, coming out of the Hamas-controlled Ministry of, of Health. And so once again, one has to ask, so is there any verification for all these numbers of fatalities coming out of Gaza? Of course not. There's no way of verifying that. We do have one documented case. Uh, you'll recall the case of the hospital where originally Israel was accused of bombing a hospital. And I think they talked about 500, even 800 civilian casualties in that single incident. And, and this was put out by the Hamas Ministry of Health. Uh, but in the end, when obviously it came out that it wasn't Israel, that this was, this was uh, uh, an astray rocket that malfunctioned of Islamic Jihad, but actually, people looked at the crater and they said, well, actually, the explosion wasn't so big. And it's strange that there were so many um, so many fatalities. And in the end, I saw a report on the AFP wire service, uh, uh, the quoting European intelligence agencies, saying maybe it was between 15 and 50 people who were killed. Now, let's take the lower number put out by the Hamas Ministry of Health, 500. That's 10%. 10%. And that's just one documented case. In most of the cases, we don't have someone, you know, uh, seriously looking at the case. Now, I've got no doubt that there are people caught up in crossfire. I've got no doubt that there have been civilian casualties. And, and uh, I'm not trying to, and, you know, I'm not trying to push over or cover up that the situation for the civilian population of Gaza is very difficult at this moment. But the sort of numbers coming out of Gaza, I think everyone in the media 
and in civil society needs to take them with a grain of salt. Now, Mark, you've served Israel through many conflicts over the years, often making the case on TV, as you're doing now several times a day, at least. Um, How does this conflict and this war compare to your experiences of those you've been involved with in the past? So first of all, I want to say that we, what we haven't had in the past is this array of world leaders who come to Israel to express solidarity. President Biden, the British Prime Minister, the German Chancellor, the French President, uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, the, we had the Prime Minister of Italy, the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic, the Prime Minister of Romania, the Prime Minister of Austria, the Chancellor of Austria, I should say, um, and, and the phone calls. And I think because of the horrific nature of, of the Hamas massacre of October 7th and I mean, we're still, look, we're now 21 days into this and we're still burying people and we've still got bodies that are so badly burnt we can't identify them and we've still got people missing and we've got over 220 hostages in Gaza. I think the the, the horrific nature of this attack, uh, of the Hamas attack on Israel has actually, uh, I think, drawn the line in the sand and people understand Yes, this isn't Israel against Palestinians. This is this is Israel, a democracy defending itself against a brutal, ruthless ISIS-type terrorist organization. It doesn't mean that everyone's, you know, applauding all everything Israel is doing, but I think there's a, a fundamental understanding that Israel is responding to an atrocious act of violence. As we've been saying, the attack of October 7th was the largest terrorist attack in real terms since 9-11 and the largest single act of anti-Semitic violence since the Holocaust. And the German chancellor, his words, not mine, he compared Hamas to the Nazis. And the Americans, not the Israelis, and the other Europeans have compared Hamas to ISIS. And I think that, that's been a bit of a game changer. And yet that political support hasn't been reflected necessarily in the public at large. Uh, and we've seen protests both in London and other British cities and around the Western world ramping up in recent weeks there's no sign they're going to decline do you feel that, that will begin to take a toll on the political support that we're enjoying that israel's enjoying at the moment it could i don't know but i can tell you this israel is determined and committed to to get the job done and i mean we've had and you've referred to this you've asked me to compare with previous rounds of fighting in in gaza and you're correct because since since hamas took over in 2000 and seven and 16 years ago 2008 there there have been several rounds of fighting but i think it's important for your viewers to understand that hamas uh, 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 when they attacked us this is not just another round of fighting there's a decision taken in israel that that's it you know this is no longer something that we will stand for there were all these theories yes that uh, israel is is can live with a Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip. That the, the, the responsibility that Hamas has of governing 2.3 million people that forces them to be more responsible, that forces them to be more pragmatic, that forces a moderation of their positions. Ultimately, the fact that they're in government forces them to behave in a more rational, normal way. Well, we saw on October 7th that all those theories are just not true. It's just not true. Hamas doesn't give a hoot about the 2.3 million people inside Gaza. And what we saw in their declaration of war against us is that the status quo whereby Israel lives next to this ISIS-type terror enclave is just not sustainable. Now, what, And uh, therefore, for the first time, for the first time, Israel has adopted a policy, we will eliminate Hamas. We will dismantle its military machine and we will destroy its political power in Gaza. 
And that will mean a ground invasion, as the Prime Minister very clearly said just this week. Um, but many people have been surprised at the delay at that ground invasion. We've seen 360,000 reservists called up. The forces are massed. The forces appear to be ready. We've seen a few incursions, but not very many. Um, can you just outline for our audience what the factors are that might influence the Prime Minister's and the Cabinet's final decision to go in? What was the, 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 the factors that might influence the timing here? You know, it's interesting because sometimes the Israelis are depicted, we Israelis are depicted as shooting first and asking questions later, overly, you know, overly, overly quick to go for the draw, so to speak. And I think we're showing uh, in this operation that that's not the case, that we're being very judicious, that we're thinking uh, two, three steps ahead, and that when we do go in, and we will, it'll be at a time of our choosing when we think the conditions are optimal for us. Obviously, the safety of the hostages is a primary concern. Obviously, the overall goal of destroying Hamas and of not allowing the, you know, we re, let, let's speak frankly, Israelis re, refuse to return to the reality of, of, of 6th of Oct 7th of October in the morning. Uh, uh, we just refuse to live next to this terror enclave any longer. And we will change the situation in Gaza. So the goals of our operation are more far-reaching than previous operations. Our goal is fundamental change. And I know uh, at some of these demonstrations you alluded to, there have been calls for immediate ceasefire. And that's what Hamas wants. Of course, Hamas wants an immediate ceasefire because Hamas, you know, attacked us, murdered our people, I should say massacred our people. And then they want, when Israel strikes back, they want a ceasefire. Of course, I mean, that's logical from their perspective. Yes, stop Israel from attacking them, from counterattacking, I should say. But the, but the but factors involved in the in the timing, people have been talking about the Americans. They've been talking about Iran, Hezbollah. They've been talking about the fact that Hamas is beginning to degrade over time because they're underground. They're using up their fuel and so forth. What do you think are the main the main factors that will affect the decision? I think we're just waiting for the ultimate, for the you know the the best time to do it. I think the the factors you say are are relevant safety of the hostages, coordination with friends and allies, uh, when is the military uh, ready to strike in a way that will surprise them. Uh, we've had, as you know, on two successive evenings as we speak, we've had serious ground incursions by land forces in and out after destroying targets that we wanted to destroy. Uh, but this is a job that has to be done. And I, I'd also tell you that Israel does this in a way that we know, we fear for the hostages, obviously, we want to avoid civilian casualties on the Israeli side. And we also, I can tell you, as the father of an IDF soldier, we also have fears about our, our, our young men and women there in the front. And we know that Hamas is a ferocious uh, enemy. We know they're capable of the most terrible violence and uh, uh, committing atrocities. We saw that in the way they acted on October 7th. And they're, they're, they're dug in. They have... As we said a moment ago, they've been there for 16 years. They've built elaborate defenses. One of the hostages, you'll recall, uh, when she got out, one of the four out of the 200 and over 220, one of the four said that it was like a spider web of, of tunnels under Gaza. Uh, and we have to deal with that. And so, we, of course, we don't take the decision lightly. We have to do what we have to do. But we know the, the dangers involved and the challenges involved in a ground incursion. But, you know, I was speaking to some young soldiers just, just a moment ago, and they were saying to me, I mean, they know the dangers, but they also know that this is a job that needs to be done. 
Once again, the bottom line is this. Israel refuses to continue living next to a terror enclave that's capable of, of, of committing the sort of violence we saw on October 7th. We refuse to return to the status quo. That is unacceptable for Israelis. The, the, the previous status quo of living next to Hamas and just waiting for the next attack, that is unsustainable, and Israelis refuse to accept it any longer. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Now, Mark, but, but there are two status quos, at least, aren't there in Israel? There's the southern status quo with Gaza. There's the northern status quo with Hezbollah, which is a more formidable, larger and much better equipped and armed and funded fighting force than Hamas. Now that Israel's awoken to the fact that a slumbering monster can awake at any moment and you can't rely upon speculation about, about the psychology, and like you say, the pragmatism of terror groups, because once they've got the capability, they can use it. Are the arguments that we've been hearing in Israel that a preemptive strike on Hezbollah or you know, uh, using, now that Hezbollah no longer has the element of surprise, are those beginning to carry more weight in Israeli thinking at the moment? So our policy is victory in the South and deterrence in the North. Now, you're correct in your question that maybe deterrence won't work. We can't be sure that Hezbollah won't attack. So I'd say to you and through you to Hezbollah, uh, Hamas took us by surprise. It was a mistake by Israel. We'll be looking into exactly what happened to find out why we were surprised. But we won't be surprised in the north. We've mobilized our forces already. And if uh, Hezbollah does attack, in against us if they do launch acts of aggression israel is ready and waiting and our response will be swift and uh, and and formidable we want deterrence in the north we were not interested in a conflict but if hezbollah does start one it'll finish on israel's terms and you know the the people who lose the most the most will be the the citizens of lebanon over the last decade, that country has suffered tragedy after tragedy. I mean, it's been all over the newspaper. The, the country is imploding economically and it's ungovernable. And there are all these issues that the poor Lebanese have had to deal with. Uh, Hezbollah, if they launch a war, it'll be a crime against the people of Lebanon who will have to suffer uh, an uh, Israel-Lebanon war that, that none of them want. And it's only if it'll only happen because Hezbollah is doing the bidding of its Iranian patrons. So you feel that Israel is able to have a tolerance for the status quo in the north, whereas it doesn't have that tolerance any longer in the south? Well, uh, Hamas has proven that you can't have a sustainable quiet with them. I mean, that, was, that policy was tried and failed, failed dismally. That's the truth. Uh, we'll see what Hezbollah is doing. There are people who tell us, uh, we've had meetings with all sorts of foreign leaders over the last uh, week, 
uh, uh, they all tell us that Hezbollah is more open to hear uh, what, what people in Lebanon feel. And there's a clear majority of Lebanese who would oppose any escalation. Now, a clear majority of Lebanese don't see a reason to provoke a conflict with Israel. Even in the Lebanese Shia community, there are those who think Hezbollah would be making a tragic mistake if it launched a war against Israel. And so people tell us that Hezbollah, this, the feelings in Lebanon are so strong against war with Israel that this could contain Hezbollah, even if the Iranians are encouraging them to do the opposite. But we'll have to wait and see. I know we've moved forces to the north. We've taken preparations to the north. We've vacated uh, uh, all the communities uh, uh, close to the Lebanese border. We know that's possible. We're ready. But once again, it won't be uh, uh, if there is conflict in the north. It's not because Israel wanted it. It's because it was forced upon us by Hezbollah. Now, Mark, these are obviously very dangerous and perhaps desperate times in some ways for uh, for Israel. Has this cause any changes in Israel's rules of engagement. I'm thinking not just of Gaza, but also on the West Bank, where we have seen soldiers responding to stone throws with live fire aimed towards their legs. That seems like a, a different rules of, a set of rules of engagement than we've seen in the past. Is that the, is that, is that the case? I can't refer to the specific, specific incidents. I'm not aware of them, but I, I can tell you we're at war. In the past, we talked about operations against Hamas in Gaza. Now we say we're at war. And against Hamas activists on the West Bank, we've preemptively been arresting them. There are Hamas cells across the West Bank, and we're not waiting for them to come and attack us. We're, we're, we're arresting them uh, uh, and taking uh, uh, necessary steps now to, to keep that situation under control. But of course, we have to protect ourselves. Look, you asked a good question before when you asked about Lebanon. Yes, but there's a possibility of problems from the Syrian frontier. There are possibilities of problems on the West Bank. The only thing I could tell your, your viewers, uh, uh, Israel has fought two front wars in the past, in 1967 and 1973. 73 uh, um, was difficult for Israel, very difficult. We're like, like this time, we were caught by surprise. But in the end, we prevailed. And though we don't want a two-front war, we're convinced we will win one if we're forced to fight one. So in terms of the actual rules of engagement that the the, the IDF is employing on the ground, um, have these, I mean, obviously protecting civilian life continues to be a priority for Israel as for any other democracy, but have the measures been relaxed in terms of the leaflet drops, the text messages, the knock on the roof, knock on roof policy with dummy bombs, have those been relaxed at all to allow the IDF to engage more, more aggressively in, in Gaza? I think we have to engage more aggressively because of uh, uh, of the threats that are out there. And so I don't think our, everything we do is in accordance with international law. Um, but we are acting more aggressively because we're at war. Okay. And looking at the the, the bigger geopolitical picture uh, with, uh, with respect to Iran in particular, uh, we have seen uh, quite um, a, a slackening of American pressure in, in the recent 12 months or so towards Iran in terms of relaxing sanctions and so forth. But then in contrast with that, we've seen some American strikes on Iranian uh, assets in Syria over the last 24 hours or so in response to aggression from Syrian militia, Syrian controlled militia in the region. Um, what's your analysis of the, uh, of the chances of regional conflagration drawing in Iran, given the bigger pieces that are at play here? So I said we want deterrence in a war. And we know that if there is a war in, in the north, it'll be because Iran wanted one. 
And here I want to praise the United States. Uh, President Biden has been uh, 100% behind us. Uh, uh, he, As you saw, he visited us earlier uh, this week when he came and he, he, he expressed his support for Israel. He, uh, uh, it's not only the words, it's also his deeds. Um, you know, they're, they're helping us with our stockpiles of weaponry to make sure we have the tools that we need to win the war in Gaza and to deter people in the north. He's also, as you know, moved two aircraft carrier groups uh, to the Middle East, um, deterring, he said, to people who are interested in exploiting the crisis in Gaza for their own nefarious needs. He's told them don't. And I think that American support and that American deterrence is very important. And if there if there isn't an explosion in the north, it'll be because the Americans have drawn a line in the sand and convinced Israel's other enemies that they should stay out of this one. And uh, I think the recent American strikes uh, against Iranian bases in Syria are a sign that they're saying we're serious about this. Right. And so I hope that I hope that in Iran and in Hezbollah people take heed. So peace in the north and with regard to Iran holding on out the conflict depends to some large extent on the Americans. I think the Americans are sending a message that the Iranians should watch their step. And it's an important message. Um, and uh, I think the Iranians will be foolish to try to escalate the situation now. Uh, but you never know. And we have to be prepared for it. Uh, I think also from your point of view as Brits, uh, uh, America has led, Britain is also leading, and, and it's interesting, the other Europeans following as well, yes? Uh, we've we've had support from Europe that we're not used to having, and it's, it's good. We're pleased to see it. Uh, the American president, you know, by making the comparison with ISIS, has drawn a moral line in the sand, and it's very, very important. And I think other countries have followed, uh, and for Israelis, yes? We're sometimes used to being alone when we're taking on the terrorists. It's gratifying to see the level of international support we are receiving. Now, one of the strange or, or sort of um, secondary effects of the conflict has been to draw together what was previously quite a divided nation, the nation of Israel, politically. It's become Amichad once again. And I think that we've seen that reflected throughout the diaspora as well, that Jews of all walks of life, from all nationalities, have pulled together in solidarity in any number of ways, you know, spiritually and practically. Um, what do you think is the importance of that to the Israeli war effort sitting there, wherever you are in, in, in Jerusalem? Um, what do you think is the, the importance of, of Jewish unity throughout the diaspora with regard to the facts on the ground in the war? I think it's crucial. And, uh, and we have to remember the following. When Hamas stormed the border and started butchering our people, they went to left-wing kibbutzim, and they went to Sterot, which is a bastion of Likud, and they killed everyone they found. They don't care how we vote. They don't care if we're left-wing or right-wing, if we're secular or religious. They kill us because we're Israelis, because we're Jews. And uh, I think there was a wake-up call. I mean, we've been very divided politically in Israel over the last couple of months. The whole debate over judicial reform has divided the country. Um, we've had maybe almost unprecedented political polarization in Israel, yes? And we've been arguing passionately about all sorts of issues. But I think in many ways, the, the brutal atrocities committed by Hamas against our people was a wake-up call, yes? Ultimately, there's much more that unites us than divides us. And this is, the public is, as you said in your question, has united just as, as you're telling me diaspora Jewish communities have. I mean, they, they butchered 
supporters of Benjamin Netanyahu and they butchered supporters of peace now and everything in between. And the diaspora communities know that the people who yell in the streets of Europe, uh, jihad and so forth, they, they don't distinguish who you support politically. Yes, the, the very existence of a Jewish state is for them something that, that is unacceptable and they want to kill us. Uh, and the manifestations of this has been in the extension of the government. Yes, the the the, the party that was in opposition, uh, Benny Gantz's party, I think it's called National Union in English. They've joined the coalition and uh, are in the war cabinet. And I think that reflects the desire of the Israeli people for unity to, to achieve victory in this war. And when the war is over, we'll have plenty of time for politics again. But we've got to win the war first. Um, ultimately, there are a whole series of questions that need to be examined. Uh, I spoke before about that we didn't get an intelligence warning of the, that attack on October 7th. Why didn't we get an intelligence working, a warning? Was there something wrong? You know, we pride ourselves in Israel about our, our you know, very good Mossad and Shin Bet and so forth. Why was there no warning? Why did they surprise us? And secondly, you know, we spent all this time building a fence with all the high tech and it was supposed to be impenetrable. And yes, they stormed across it. And then there are questions. Why did it take so long for, for to, to, to remove the terrorists from Israeli territory? You know, some of the members of the kibbutzim said we were there for seven hours. Terrorists were walking around their communities until they were thrown out. There are all these questions. And of course, it all filters up to the senior political leadership, right? And Benjamin Netanyahu said uh, just a few days ago, I am responsible. I also have to be judged. But I think all that is going to wait until the war is over because we've got to win the war. The, the focus now is victory. We have to defeat Hamas. We have to destroy Hamas. We have to create a new reality in Gaza. That's the goal. I would just add that uh, destroying Hamas is not just uh, good for the people of Israel who won't have to live next to this terrorist enclave any longer, but it ultimately, I think, is good for the people of Gaza who, who deserve better than this autocratic theocracy that they live under. I mean, they've been impoverished. Uh, they've suffered much. They continue to suffer because of that, that terrible regime, and, and their lives can only get better after we've changed the political reality in Gaza. Now, just one last question, Mark. You're uh, a bit more of a personal one. You're Australian-born. Um, do you ever feel in, in darker moments that, God, life would just be so much easier if I went back to Australia? And more boring. <laughs> to be, to, to, but to be serious, yeah, I never think about going back. I mean, I go back to visit. I've got family there, yes. I've got a mother and siblings in Australia. But no, Israel's my home, and uh, I wouldn't think of leaving. Uh, I also think we need perspective because what, what we're going through now is very, very difficult. But Israel has faced terrible challenges in the past and we've overcome and this country is a, a great success story. And I am convinced that we will prevail in, in dealing with these challenges and Israel will continue to be an amazing success story. And uh, anyone uh, uh, who feels for Israel, I mean, I, I immigrated to this country from Australia, as you said rightly. Um, in 1982, so how many years ago is that now? That's that's quite a while ago, uh, and uh, 41 years ago. And I've not regretted that for a moment. And and people who want to immigrate to this country, who want to become Israelis, you should know that life in Israel has its tensions and has its, you know, as we see at the moment. But ultimately, this country is an amazing success story, as we will show and continue to show. Uh, and I remain optimistic about the future of this country. 
Well, Mark Reger from the Jewish Chronicle offices here and from Diaspora Jury on the whole. Kola kavod and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for speaking to us. Shabbat, sh- Shabbat Shalom. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.